0: Well-being, making things better, has to include aspects of social justice.
1: good relations with each other. I think fundamentally starting with our children, you know, raising our children to creatively learn from a living earth, from whatever cosmology you come from, is incredibly powerful. Maintaining your children's ability to engage in that learning relationship with a living creation is a source of survival wisdom for the future. Start with whatever your community is, your community, and then blow it out to the bioregion. So the more we can build relationships with each other, the more we have possibility to break up those crazy big things that are destroying the world. And the more relationships we build and land in each other, the more we'll know how to take good care. Uh, and heal from these wounds of the past, and provide food and water and shelter and like <laughs> and and like health for our children, like we all,
2: mm-hmm.
1: all want at the end of the day, right?
3: Nintinwe Magtuk, Welcome to the Native Seed Pod. I'm your host and pollinator, Melissa Nelson. I'm excited to introduce you to a new special podcast series and partnership as part of our Native Seed Pod Season 4, Knowledge Symbiosis. Can traditional ecological knowledge and biomimicry harmonize? This special series is co-produced in partnership with the Biomimicry Center at Arizona State University, co-directed by Sara El Saeed and the Learning From Nature podcast.
4: This Knowledge Symbiosis series is co-produced and co-broadcast with Learning From Nature, the biomimicry podcast with Lily Ehrman. You can listen to Learning From Nature and the Native Seed Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, Dr. Penelis and Dr. Maybrit. I am excited to have a conversation with you both today and discuss design and the built environment, traditional ecological knowledge, indigenous knowledges, and biomimicry. So, uh, Dr. Penelis, do you want to begin and give an introduction, what you're working on now, all that sort of stuff?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My name is Penelis Stroess. Um I'm an Anishinaabe and mixed European descendant. Um, I was raised in the Yurok community in Northern California um, and now uh, live part on Dona uh, lands in Tucson, Arizona, and part um, I go back to Anishinaabe, Aking, uh, Anishinaabe homeland up in Wisconsin um, as long as I can in the summertime. My background is science and en- engineering. Um, I got into science and engineering because um, when I was a young teen, the thing that got me excited about physics was recognizing the alignment with um, with my tribe's creation story and just sort of the way we see the world and and seeing those alignments with what physics was was sharing and so that was my initial intersection um, and so everything unfolded and and you know my entire academic career has been science based but it was driven by. Um, just the fascination at the alignment with um, science, uh, scientific research and even like best practices, uh, you know my master's and doctoral were in engineering fields um, and the alignment of best practices in engineering and design um, and what I understand to be my tribe's way of approaching things and design and you know apply knowledge. so that that's been my intersection. I didn't continue. I do have a doctorate, but my work has not necessarily been academic. I ran an organization for a number of years uh, focused on doing um, in, uh, indigenous design work, supporting our communities, families, nations to do spiritually and culturally based infrastructure design and development. Um, so I did that for a number of years and now I work with Ending Collective um, and I'll share more about that later.
4: Amazing, thank you. Maybrit, would you want, like to introduce yourself please? Uh,
0: yeah, kia ora um, mahi nui ki ora um Nā mahi nei ki tino faina o uh, te ao. Um, Ngā kātiariane me um, e te nima ke aku tu pūna. Itepoaki a e kiri me whāing te i nei, uh, o te um, Maybrit Peterson Zari taku ingoa. Um, tina katoi, Tina katoi, Tina tātou katoa. Uh, so, Kia ora everybody. Hello. Um, my name's Maybrit Peterson-Zari. I was just giving a, a greeting to the Indigenous people of the world, I suppose, um, and just saying that I, uh, my ancestors come from Denmark and from Scotland, um, and I am a Pakeha New Zealander. I um, have grown up here. Uh, so I'm not an Indigenous person. I'm a um, we can say tangata Tireti here. In New Zealand, um, a person of the treaty. Um, and yeah, I was just saying where I was from, basically. I work at Auckland University of Technology in the School of Future Environments. I'm an associate professor there. I suppose uh, you might have asked me to, <laughs> to be part of this podcast because of my research project, NUWAL, which stands for Nature-Based Urban Design for Wellbeing and Adaptation in Oceania. And the the underlying motivation for that research project, which is a a large team of people, um, it's not just me, (laughs) Um, Yeah, the the underlying motivation for that is to um, understand how traditional ecological knowledges uh, in Oceania in particular can help to inform um, climate change adaptation, so particularly when working with nature, in such a way that that we're not accidentally perpetuating neo-colonisation in our part of the world through climate adaptation, which is, you know, unfortunately a little bit of what we're seeing. So, um, so I suppose my motivation for being involved in this work is is more of a, a justice lens um, and thinking about how, as a non-indigenous person, I can um, be a a partner in decolonisation and to support um,
4: re-indigenization, which is obviously led by indigenous people. Amazing. Thank you. I am so excited to have this conversation. The knowledge that you both hold and that we're able to share and and discuss in today, it's just going to be really wonderful and juicy. And I'm so excited. Penelis, how do you define or characterize indigenous knowledge systems or TEK, traditional ecological knowledge? And what do you know of the biomimicry field?
1: I definitely see indigenous knowledge as, um, an actively lived practice. (laughs) So, um, just the, the, the knowledge gained from living with and living from, uh, your homeland, um, but also built on the foundation of, um, of ancestral knowledge. So it includes the new knowledge that is gained from intimate living with and from the land, um, sort of filtered and reflected with our grandparents' knowledge and our ancestors' knowledge. Um, so definitely a lived, lived, lived practice um, from a particular cosmology. Um, and, and also someone whose design practice has definitely been, uh, can be described as biomimicry <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, I define biomimicry to be similar in that it is engaging with the living world to learn from form, relationship, pattern, process, to understand how to do uh, good design, principles of good design. And Maybrit,
4: how do you define or characterize biomimicry and what do you know of indigenous knowledge systems or TEK traditional ecological knowledge?
0: My pathway to this work has been through biomimicry. My PhD that I did was in regenerative urban design and ecosystem biomimicry. So I was very much interested in trying to understand how ecosystems work and then apply that knowledge to urban and architectural design. It's been really fascinating just trying to understand the generalised principles of how the planet works basically and, you know, why can't we have that as our as our goals and our metrics in architectural and urban design. So I did my PhD in that and I, I wrote a book about that. Um, but since then I've I've come to realise that, especially in urban design and architecture, there's really no need to be too absolute with the term. So we're always working with nature. I mean, I think a regenerative built environment needs to be integrated with nature, you know, basically have a lot more plants and animals in it. <laughs> and so um, I've, I've kind of moved away from really strict definitions of what biomimicry is and what it isn't. And I'm just really interested in how we, how we make our urban environments more um, alive so yeah, I have come to this work through biomimicry and I should acknowledge um, Janine Benyus and Dana Baumeister, who I have learnt from. So yeah, thanks to those guys. <laughs> and when it comes to traditional ecological knowledge, um, my kind of limited understanding um, in, in New Zealand and Aotearoa we use the term maturanga Māori, which means the the sort of traditional knowledge of Māori people. It's not a stagnant thing which was in the past, it's very much a something which is still evolving and still um, continues to be added to. There's a lot of scientific basis to some of the stories and the ideas and the understandings, and that's one thing I've been trying to really get across to, to people who are non-Indigenous. It's not that these are kind of nice stories you know, or that they're fables or myths. There's actually a lot of really solid wisdom in there, which is much more aligned to how we probably should be living in the planet, particularly in these times of climate crisis and biodiversity crisis. Um, So to me, the the key thing about traditional ecological knowledge is the underlying worldview, which is always very different between different groups of peoples, but often is about a different way of relating to nature. Um, People are often part of nature rather than separate from it. The climate is part of ecology rather than separate. And in my part of the world, at least, one of the common themes is that the, the world around us is alive. Like rivers are alive. Mountains are alive. The forests are alive. And I think that's quite a difference from Western science sometimes. And so when you're working with nature, you know, whether that's in a strict kind of biomimicry sense or if you're actually replanting something, you're not just doing a technical act. It's not just like, you know, this much flow rate or this many species or whatever. It's, it's actually... Perhaps with somebody's ancestor, like literally somebody's ancestor. So, so there's a kind of a, um, a spiritual component, but also a political component to working with nature alongside Indigenous peoples.
4: Yeah, that actually gets at some of this deeper conversation that the folks in the biomimicry space um, as an educator, I'm I'm kind of in this space and folks who are like practicing biomimicry, so to speak, are sometimes missing, at least in the media, when we see these glorious, beautiful examples of biomimicry, sometimes there's there's a lack of understanding that we are nature and this needs to be a reciprocal relationship. It can be a lot of the same extractive mindset and practice. And I think that's for me, at least a a really important part of these conversations. Like actually people have been learning from nature and are in relation to nature and we need to have conversations with them and learn from them and respect them and understand their perspective because it's so important. Um, and as a, uh, daughter of Eastern European immigrants on the land of Arapaho, Ute and Cheyenne peoples, uh, now as somebody who practices biomimicry, I think it's really important. To, yeah, to have to have that mindset to to be constantly learning. How am I in relation to nature? What is nature? And so that's my next question. And maybrit I think you you spoke to this a little bit, Penelisa, I'd love to hear your thoughts. How do you define nature?
1: And then um, I'll pass it on to maybrit as well. Um, you know, <laughs> people people around me sometimes like laugh at my, my pause and my cringe around the term nature. <laughs> um, I, I would typically use the word creation. Yeah. You know, when I'm, when I'm teaching or talking or like intersecting um, with other people um, because um, because that's how I think uh, everything is part of creation. Maybrit, it was just so lovely, lovely, and relieving um, to hear you share, um, and I think that that's a beautiful example of how how people can come into good relation with the land and each other by, you know, having that that creative, open mind and heart that lead to these conclusions, right? So yeah, I, I don't I don't think about nature. Um, I think about creation. To me. Everything is creation, um, but when I'm talking to my children, um, I talk a lot of the times about there's creation, and then there's human manipulated creation, and um, and uh, yes, there's there's a distinction there. You know, there's a reason why you know we send you out to nature, <laughs> quote unquote, to non-human manipulated creation to to gather your wisdom. Um, there's a reason why we send you out there. Um, and not, you know, into, into the heart of the city. maybrit thoughts, additions?
0: Yeah, so um, I've heard many of my colleagues here in, in New Zealand um, and the rest of Oceania talk about um, the term nature in itself being a little bit problematic because it recreates the, yeah. the binary between humans and the rest of the living world where the underlying worldview that, that I'm kind of used to uh, trying to understand is very much about um, humans being part of the world around them. So I, I quite often talk about ecologies, and I'm still not sure that's the right word either. Um, I liked hearing you talk about creation, <laughs> Um, Yeah, it is quite difficult to communicate because Obviously, there is the living world, which we can call nature or or ecosystems or ecologies, which we are part of, but we need to be able to talk about that so that we can talk about how to um, live with it in better relationship. but it's just that the relationship isn't between two separate entities mm. i e humans and mm-hmm. nature, it's that we are in it, so we are of the world, which um I find deeply relieving. <laughs> And, and this is kind of why I, why I was initially so attracted to biomimicry as a young woman is that I, I was very worried about the state of the planet and, you know, and it felt like a really big weight on my shoulders as a designer, like, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? How are we going to live better? How, mm-hmm. how are we going to not trash the planet? And understanding that the plants and animals around us and, you know, the soil structure, everything, the, the living world already knows how to do this stuff And that we are actually junior to that. You know, we are the the younger siblings is such a relief. We don't have to figure it all out. We can actually just be observant. And so in a way, I think that thread of biomimicry that, um, you know, the the kind of biomimicry that particularly comes out of the United States, that humbling part of it does tie in quite well with this idea that um, nature is not a separate thing to humans.
4: Yeah. You worded that so beautifully. Thank you. Yeah. I deeply align with the kind of hopelessness. um, And I see this a lot in my students as well, who are undergraduates, this, the climate chaos, the climate anxiety, it can be so overwhelming. Um, And that is like, I think a lot of folks in the biomimicry space um, feel so attracted to it because it is this almost like coming home and realization that both we are part of this system and the system and these organisms, the ecologies, creation offers advice for us, for how to live. Um, we just need to learn how to listen. Native Seed Pod is produced by the Cultural Conservancy with generous support by
1: Tamil Pius Trust. To contribute to our polyculture and to find out more information, please visit us at nativeseedpod.org or nativeland.org.
4: And that was deeply hopeful and humbling at the same time for me. It was like, oh, I don't need to create everything from scratch. I don't need to reinvent the wheel and design our way out of the, the hopelessness.
1: Well, when, when you think about it, I'm going to take it to something that's familiar to all y'all. It's like the, the indigenous perspective is, is very time deep, right? Mm-hmm. Well, um, seeing the world from this very time deep lens Um all of our ancestors, you know, I'm I am uh, very European and also indigenous to, to North America as well. Um, all of our ancestors lived creation based, learn from creation, very relational. It's about, it is about maintaining good relations with a living world, lives. Not that long ago, if you think about the time depth, colonial forces tore a lot of indigenous Europeans away. I mean, an excellent way of having power over people is to remove them from their relationships. From land and remove them from their relationships with each other, and so that's been a really intentional craft behind the forces of colonization that impacted Europe, that impacted Asia, that you know that really have impacted all of the continents, um, but over here in the Americas, um, a little bit later uh, than some other places, you know, I'd I, I'd say. Um, uh, not all places, of course. <laughs> so, it's a very recent thing that we're re- that we're sort of living within this society that says that we're apart from. Yeah, and I think that that is what causes a lot of the a lot of folks who are from settler colonial um, cultures only, you know, that have been torn from their lands to to feel this inherent pull towards teachings and sciences and spiritual paths. That remind us of our wholeness, uh, you know, as people. And and yeah, I love the fact that you recognize, you know, Mabrid and function from that place of like this is coming into relationship, um, which is is really what doing wise biomimicry is about or wise design or, you know. It, coming into relationship with land and each other, it is an ecological act and a spiritual act and a political act and a social act. And recognizing it as such is really valuable.
4: Yeah. And I, I want to get more into what is and what does sustainability mean to you and or regenerative design. I feel like these are two words that are thrown around a lot these days. And so I'd love to hear from you both how you define um, and approach sustainable and or regenerative design. Nibra, uh, do you want to go first? Right, okay. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, I've spent a lot of
4: time thinking
0: about these terms. Um, so to me, I try not to use the word sustainability because to me um we're we're in a state where we don't want to sustain where we are because it's we're in a very um, precarious position in relation to to all of the life on the planet including us (laughs) Um, and I'm including the climate as part of that so we we don't want to sustain what we have we really need to figure out how to make things more well regenerate um and so in the world of architecture and urban design and, and kind of the and landscape architecture and so on um it's quite hard to even get to neutral no impact but i think if we if we're only aiming for no impact you know carbon neutral water zero whatever then we're almost out of relationship completely with the world around us so if we can flip into this idea of regenerative design where we are trying to reestablish that relationship and that connection and and generate wellness you know, both if we, if we remember that humans are part of ecology, then generating that wellness necessarily um, includes the social aspects of individual humans but also the, the community values and the societal values that generate whatever it is to be a, have a good life as a human, depending on where you are, um, that has to be in concert with um, ecological health and climate health and because, the, you know, those things are not able to be separated so um, to me, regeneration is, is a much more ambitious but also necessary target, but it's also a lot more hopeful. So as a designer, if you're, if you're in the space of, um, oh, we need to cut this and cut that and, you know, less water, less energy, et cetera, rather than like, okay, wh- what do we need to do to generate health here? It's a really different way of approaching a design problem
4: yeah, and not just the health of the humans living in that space, but the health of the habitat in which it is built or the ecosystem that it exists in, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I would just say as well, quickly, that um, well-being, making things better, necessarily includes social justice. When you are like me from a colonised country, there's kind of, I think some thinking that, oh, that's in the past and we don't need to talk about that and whatever. But, um, you know, you can't, it's kind of like something which is still festering under a scab. So, <laughs> you know, you have to keep talking about what happened in the past, I think, particularly for Indigenous people who have been removed from land, and that absolutely is a tactic of colonisation that, that happened in our part of the world, which, you know, still happening in a lot of places. Regenerative design probably needs to include a slightly more holistic idea of what well-being is too. What what um, constitutes making things better? So yeah. yeah, it sort of comes back to what I was saying right at the beginning that yes, climate is urgent, and we need to think about climate change adaptation. I so said particularly in Oceania where I'm from, but um, that has to include aspects of social justice.
4: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Penelope's thoughts on the term sustainability and the term regenerative design and, and what they mean to you?
1: Yeah, I laugh because, you know, Maybrit might as well have been speaking my voice. Uh, <laughs> so, so I'm not going to touch on sustainability. And, you know, when I think about regenerative, I think, you know, yeah, regenerating the health of land and people, which uh, the what you do to both regenerate the health of land and people is the same thing, <laughs> you know, the same thing, same, same. Um, I do want to say I had a little shock this earlier this year. Um, I went to a regenerative agriculture conference in Chicago. It was an international regenerative agriculture conference. Cracked me up because um, they are trying to do the same thing to the word regenerative that has been done to the word sustainability. Um, and uh, so it was big. It was a big international you know, a lot of big, big players were there. Mm. Uh, I was fascinated, right? Watching people say, "Well, we don't really know what the definition of regenerative is, and it doesn't really have a real definition, and so we're just going to make it kind of mean this, and you know, such and such, what we want it to mean, um, to continue our path forward." And mm-hmm. um, you know, Mabritt, I'm sure, if it, and, and and Lily, I'm sure, if you were in the rooms, you would have been a disruptor as well, um, because I think, oh when i went back to school to get my phd i was happy to see the existence of the field of resilience science these days I'm like oh yay <laughs> this is a this is going to be a helpful tool um because i think it 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 speaks to the intersection of indigenous knowledge and and western science pretty pretty precisely i found Um, with, you know, again, without the cosmology, but getting as close as you can to some of the same conclusions, but without applying the cosmology. And so, you know, raising my hand and saying, actually, here's, here's a definition, you know, regenerating the health of land and people. If you haven't heard of it, there's this whole field of science because you can't convince people who haven't felt it themselves. You know, you just want to gather up all of those big Uh, you know, corporate heads that are deciding what regenerative design is going to mean as far as agricultural systems, but they're coming out of Cisco and they're coming out of Syngenta and invite them to go live on the land for three months Mm -hmm. so that they can develop their core wisdom. But there's a lot of people in a lot of decision-making spaces that never are going to experience that. So they're not going to be able to understand when you try to share cosmological things with them when you try to share indigenous practice and knowledge with them, their brains are going to shut down. And so I found that, you know, I mean, I have a bullet point list of here, here are the scientific recommendations of how to cultivate resilient social ecological systems. You know, there's actually a list, you know, and, and what part of this list says is that you actually can't have big gigantic corporate agribusiness farms you know literally it has to be made up of small networked systems like there's there's an entire list of things that you can follow you don't have to have indigenous cosmology and beliefs to change to have scientific backing to change the systems uh, as they are and as they are Mm -hmm. destroying us (laughs) you know Uh, So I just wanted to, like, vent that into the space um, and to say, if anybody wants me, if anybody's listening to this that wants me to send them those articles or and or the bullet points of, you know, the resilience concepts that we can put into our economies, governments, um, infrastructure design, you know, like, holla. And I would happily email things to you. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I, w- I would say
0: as well that there's nothing um, undefined about regenerative design at all. Like, um, I mean, I spent, I've spent years working that out, classifying it, and doing a whole lot of really complex uh, calculations. Like, this can be a really tangible, measurable thing, you know, particularly if you use the baseline of what is a healthy ecosystem on this site. You know, often it's been removed, so you have to do some ecological history kind of digging or use an analog ecosystem which is nearby. But you can measure things very accurately using scientific um, methods, and that can then tell you if what you've designed or what you're currently doing is, in fact, regenerative or not. So it's not it's not a wishy-washy thing at all. And, it, yeah. and in fact, it's much more tangible than sustainability is a term because- Sustainability isn't actually related to the ecological reality of the planet and of a specific site. Whereas regenerative architecture and design, which is, you know, probably other things too, maybe agriculture, you you have these measurable baselines which are related to an actual physical site. And you can it's it's kind of like, is this regenerative or not? Yes or no? Like it's very clear. I mean from an ecological point of view it's probably more difficult to, to understand and measure and um quantify the the social and the cultural and the justice side of it but I think there are still ways to do that
1: and so yeah you know maybrit you're saying let's not get tied up on the term um absolutely and I but I think that what I've heard everybody say here is doing design in a regenerative way requires learning and studying and um, humbling ourselves to be able to learn what it means to come into good relationship, right? What does it mean to come into good relationship with the land? What does it mean to come into good relationship with each other? You know, across uh, you know cultures and communities, and within cultures and communities, and governance structures, and all of that. And and so I think um, you know supporting work where we're defining what does it mean to be a good relative to the land and to each other. That's Something that can also cut across, you know, cosmological factors.
0: Yeah, I would really agree. And I, I talk to my students about this, that just because something is called biomimicry, it doesn't mean that it's coming from the same motivation. And I think um, when, you're, um, you know, when you're talking about who you are and what you're doing, why you're doing it with um, Indigenous people, you, you have to really start with positionality. Like, this is who I am. This is where I'm from. This is my motivation for engaging in this work. And I think that in a way, it would be useful to do that with biomimicry too, because the kind of biomimicry that I sort of touched upon earlier that comes out of the United States is, is really quite radically different from the robot guys in Europe who call their work biomimicry, but they're actually talking about, I don't know, stuff on Mars or like mosquito-like robots for surveillance. Like, yes, it's emulating bio, biology, but it's not it's not the kind of biomimicry with an underlying um, idea of regenerative relationships to, to the living world around us. So um, I'm, I'm quite weary of the term actually. Yeah.
4: yeah, me too. That's why, that's why I'm calling my podcast learning from nature. Uh, the subtitle is the biomimicry podcast, but I very intentionally did not put that in the name Mostly because, yeah, it's like you don't have to know about biomimicry, the term, or understand even the methodology to be excited and feel connected to and build relationship with the natural world. And I think that's a really important starting place for a lot of folks, especially non-Indigenous folks. This brings me to a big uh, talking point that I want to get at with both of you. And I think it's deeply connected to what we've been discussing. But what does a climate resilient community look like? Um, for you and for the work that you do? And how do we get there together?
1: Yeah, um, climate resilient community, uh, big systems change, small networked economies that connect people with the land and each other um where in which decision makers feel the impact of their decisions anything that reconnects people with land on a tangible level and with each other is going to lead to regenerative outcomes i think second level concept you know is um you know infrastructure economies design that are based on care of land water and people um, that incorporate care of land, water, and people in all aspects will lead to climate resilience. Um, that allow people to remain connected to their homes and families, um, and that takes priority over Juni, Junia money. <laughs> 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 proper, proper for a few, you know. So we got to we got to break it up here. We got to break up the big stuff.
4: Yeah, Mabel, how do you define a climate resilient community? And then maybe we can go back um, and and talk more about like how we can get there because I think that's my my biggest question like show me the way what's the path what's the hopeful light
0: <laughs> yeah wouldn't that be amazing to be able to do that um so I think I think the main thing is is that we we know what to do because it's not a technological issue. Um, it's a issue of worldview and kind of paradigm shift. And what we need is rapid, radical, transformative change at all levels of our human community systems. We don't need a new kind of technology or a new way of organising ourselves. I think the key thing is to try and tap into the traditional ecological knowledge of a, of a specific place. So climate resilient communities look different wherever you go. Like, the way that you would be in Arizona would be completely different than the way that I would be in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland and Aotearoa. But I think, you know, a few things, um, a lot more biomass. So, uh, just figuring out how we can live better with plants and animals around us. Um, you know, I spent so long doing my PhD and at the end people said, Oh, what's the key thing? And I'm like, just plant more trees, basically. (laughs) You know, climate resilient communities, I think, are ones where people feel connected to each other and there are ways to to create that, obviously, um, where there's less dependence on um, or no dependence, you know, on private vehicles that are based on carbon fuels. Um, I, mean, I, I actually live in a community. I live in a permaculture based community here in Tamaki Makairou. And we don't have cars in our community. They're on the outside of our community, and just the the difference that that's made to feeling more comfortable to your neighbours, having safe places for children to kind of run around and go on their scooters. And I didn't understand the impact that would have on my daily life and my daily well being until I lived here. And it saves so much room as well. We've got we, we kind of live in a big garden where there's lots of edible trees and, and we have water systems and you know it's not it's not perfect, it's not utopia, but um, there are stronger stronger ties within between people and that there's a stronger tie to the actual site, to the land, to the water, to the wind, to the sun, of where you actually are and that you're designing with those things, not against them. And that yeah, that you are, include plants and animals and soil and the air into your community. Those are your um you know, your friends. <laughs> we want to have those things with us.
4: Yeah. And this, it sounds so different than what is pushed as the ideal in the US right now, at least in this part of the world, in the westernized world where your um, pride is on how much you own, how much land you can live on, which oftentimes is just one family. And I, I very frequently dream of a community based space where there's shared childcare, shared food, shared, uh, you know, everything. And it seems so far off for so many folks like, you know, like me who don't grow up in areas like that and have access to understanding what that means. But I can see how it would be totally, it would totally shift so much. Um, And so a big question I have for both of you is how do you see us getting there? Us as a collective, I guess, but also maybe just like smaller communities. How do we, how do we get there? How do we build that? How do we start those relations or tapping tap into those relations?
1: The thing that I was thinking about when I was hearing Mybrid is, you know, it it's actually similar to um when you're from a small interconnected community, some of these things just show up. And and it also shows up with a lot of like um, you know, struggles and some toxic stuff, but <laughs> But uh, that and I'm thinking about the small, the very Mm -hmm. small uh, community, uh, small earth based community that I was raised in um, that had so much power and beauty and lessons Um, and but also struggles because we all have a lot of healing to do um, because of the, um, you know, some of uh, colonialism and living under extractive economies has done a number to all of our hearts, uh, no matter where you're from. And um, I do find a lot of power when I look to some of our traditional Indigenous governance practices that that are very relationship-based, our governance, old-style governance and social agreements about how resources are distributed and how how do we take care of each other? How do we maintain good relations with each other? Um, But I'm going to take it from that. Um, And blow it out because I think that, like, not everybody can live in in small uh, communities that are surrounded by creation. You know, we don't all have that access. I think fundamentally starting with our children, raising our children to understand how to creatively learn from a living earth, from whatever cosmology you come from, is incredibly powerful. Maintaining your children's ability to engage in that learning relationship with a living creation is a source of survival wisdom for the future. Uh, So that to me is number one. Number two is, you know, start with whatever your community is, your community, and then blow it out to the bioregion. So not everybody's an organizer, but if you are a battler and if you are an organizer, like fight to break up the big. If you are a builder and a designer, organize Food, water, shelter, energy, care. How are you doing that for your family? How is your community doing that? If you're in an urban location, Tucson, living in Tucson's been really fascinating to me because I am a country woman, 300-person town. That's where I grew up. That's what I know how to live within well. It's been fascinating to me to live within Tucson and see how, uh, oh, in this urban area, there are people who are organizing food, shelter, water, care, systems outside of the systems to learn how to care for one another and provide for one another in pockets and in interconnected pockets and bubbles in this urban location. And it's really expanded my mind to what might be possible. Um, But not relying on the, uh, the powers that be that are making decisions about what what, uh, industrial scale economies look like, they are not going to, they're not going to create the solutions. Um, change is not going to happen fast enough. And so starting with, uh, children and then community and then by a region and working from there, you know, to whatever your capacity is and knowing that tending, if you are a stay at home parent that is tending to those children, um, That is just as powerful as if you are designing bioregional economies that will provide food, water, shelter, care to your people. Both of those things are critical and valuable.
4: Um, Yes.
1: Yeah, I I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that there's
0: a lot of models, well, in our part of the world anyway, like in Aotearoa, there there are already models for how people can live together in communities. Um so yeah, papa Klinga is a is a term. Um and I have some really amazing colleagues who are focusing on how to reinstate papaklayinga, both rurally but also in the city. So, you know, what, what would a vertical community or papainga kind of be like rather than a um, a more traditional rural kind of setting? So people like um, Jade Kake and Amanda Yates and Derek Kawati and Fleur Palmer are all people could look up. Um, I do think that there's a need for us to understand that most humans live in cities and that proportion is just getting higher and higher. So we need to figure out how to live well in cities, not just in rural small settings. And my, the community I live in is actually in a big city. It's, um, it's kind of like a suburb, but it's not it's not rural. Most people who live in kind of Western or developed countries or whatever the correct term is, rich nations, um Live in these new, kind of nuclear family units, maybe slightly larger than that, but but quite small. So it might be kind of some adults and some kids. If we can expand that social unit a little bit, like my social unit is about 50 people, and where I live in my community, and so you know we can like share power cords and things like that when we have problems. We collectively can keep an eye on the water system and. Um, you know, the state of our buildings and, and the state of our gardens and we can share things. So together we help each other and we support each other and we're, we're kind of like a team. But you have to get the size of that unit right. Like four people, five people is too small, whereas beyond beyond, sort of, I don't know, 70 or so, it's, it's too big. So maybe if there's a way in cities we can have these social units defined um And, you know, kind of help each other a little bit more. That would be useful. Um, And I think one of the key things that we can do is increase our skills. So particularly around building relationships. So whether that's relationships with other people, so like the ability to facilitate things or manage conflicts or resolve things or mediate, those are such useful skills as we go into a climate kind of crisis future because we're going to have to rely on each other but also the skills around being in better relationship with, um, with land, so how you grow food and um, sow seed and harvest and preserve food and, um, I don't know, sail, look after horses. Like all these things are actually really useful skills in the future, I think. Um, and learning those skills is really a positive thing. So when I talk to young people who are freaking out about climate change, you know, actually yesterday I was just talking to a young woman on a, another podcast. And she was like, what do, you, what do you do about climate anxiety? And I was like, well, you know, you build your skills and then you're doing something positive. You're doing something that's going to increase your ability to cope in the future. Um, I guess the the final thing I'd say is that it's really important to understand the ecological and the climate and the social systems that you're in, like really deeply understand them, you know, whether that's from a purely Western science frame of view or a traditional knowledge frame of view, you know, that there are different ways to understand things, but taking the time to really deeply understand your place is crucial, I think. And we can't just only focus on our own well-being and our skills and our knowledge. We have to also um, engage in rapid, massive political change. Because, like I said right at the beginning, this is not a technological problem. It's actually a a worldview problem and a political problem. So anything we can do to shift that, I think is probably a good pathway
1: towards climate resilient communities. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That is how to heal from colonial violence and extractive economies. Tearing us from land and tearing us from each other and the wounds that we all carry and the traumas we all carry uh, and that the land carries are all a result of that. And so learning, um, you know, maybe I really appreciated what you shared. You share really important words. I just underscore and back everything that you, that you shared. Um, from a heart and soul perspective, you know, again, there's nothing more powerful than, a person taking the time to come into intimate observation and relationship with creation. Nothing will give you more power and wisdom and strength and cues of how to be in good relationship with us complex humans. And then the people that are very human centric and human focused, you know, learning how to he- heal ourselves and heal our relationships with each other navigate conflict learning how to care for each other learning how to have honest clear agreements with one another learning how to share relationships learning how to unwind the individual competitive conquer colonial violent view of the world (laughs) that people have tried to convince us is, is human nature but i disagree um is Absolutely radical, revolutionary, and um, completely necessary uh, to thrive well in this world. And the thing that gives me so much power and hope is that I'm only 42. And when I was 20, nobody was having these conversations outside of our little radical groups in our communities. But now these conversations are being had at larger and larger scales. People know. So the more we can build relationships with each other, the more we have possibility to break up those crazy big things that are destroying the world. And the more relationships we build and land in each other, the more we'll know how to take good care uh, and heal from these wounds of the past and provide food and water and shelter and, <laughs> and, and like health for our children like we all mm-hmm. all want at the end of the day, right? Yeah.
4: Mm, that was powerful. Thank you. Maybred, other thoughts on the importance of Relationality and building relations.
0: Uh, yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Penelope. I really, I really appreciate your words too. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, I think I I heard or read something somewhere that the most radical thing you can do is grow your own food at the moment in this in the society that most of us find ourselves in. Um, I I kind of also think that one of the most radical things you can do is engage in. And decolonization especially if you are a, a settler like I am you know I'm, I'm not an indigenous person and so the the ways of healing are different Um, and I think coming into a better relationship and and truly understanding the history of a place and um, you know the continued ongoing impacts of colonization is, is a really incredible thing to do if we're serious about regeneration we have to really look to ourselves how do we regenerate or make ourselves more well one of the ways is to find greater meaning in life and to find greater meaning in your work or your relationships with other people or whatever is to um create deeper relationships so whether that's with with plants you know or with animals or with other humans or with other cultures You know, that's a really great way to regenerate your own self and be a healthier person to then kind of do this quite hard work of dealing with climate crisis, you know, dealing with this radical transformative change that we need to all engage in. You talked about intimate observation, Penelise, and to me, you know, with my limited understanding, that seems to be the basis of a lot of traditional ecological knowledge or Indigenous knowledge, is that the people have been able to slow down and really look and really hear and really feel what is happening in that place. It's observation. It's not some kind of um, New Age magic or something. It's a very um, scientific act, you know, really observing properly where you're from. And so if, if there's a way to slow down and to create more meaningful relationships with all of life around you you have a better relationship with yourself too I think which helps with that healing process yeah Hmm. and I just want to (laughs) say I hope this is okay uh, Lily um
2: that
0: that I have I have many colleagues and many people in my research project who talk about these things much more eloquently than me and I would just really love if somebody here is listening and they want to know more about uh, indigenous thinking in this kind of space from Oceania, then the New World podcast series features the work of of people who are Samoan and Fijian and Maori and Nevan, who are Indigenous peoples from this part of the world. So, yeah, look that up. It's N-U-W-A-O.
4: That is a great segue because I want to acknowledge our time. The last point I would love for you guys both to speak on is what are some current projects that you're working on or spaces you're working in that are giving you joy and or hope.
1: Raising my little children um, and also supporting my newly adult children to navigate this world and retain their power and contact with the spirit and the earth, and their visionary drive, and you know, supporting supporting those youth, and and also my work at Indian Collective is is exciting. I'm designing curriculum and resource libraries, and I'm pulling together shared peer learning networks to facilitate this kind of, you know, vision design uh, implementation of spiritually and culturally responsible infrastructure development, economic development, and, and also healing work. And so that feels really meaningful and purposeful uh, for me right now. And Penelise, where can where can folks find that? Like what what's the website? Yeah. Uh, ndn collective is ndncollective.org. Yeah. My old design organization is sustainable nations.org.
4: Wonderful. Thank you. Maybe re- any projects Spaces you're excited about, things you're working on.
3: Yeah. So
0: there's, there's new, obviously. And, um, that website is www.newwao.org.nz. Um, and there's, there's a lot more about the other people involved in that project up on there and some of our publications and, um, projects, including design competitions and symposiums and podcasts and things, um, and that's been a really great project to work on, distributing the funding to the people who are doing the cool work, <laughs> in a way, and, um, and getting to go to some really amazing places and talk to some some indigenous communities across the Pacific. Uh, we've just come back from New Caledonia actually, which has been great. I'm working as well on an urban biodiversity project uh, with with a different set of colleagues, and uh, it's great that some of those some of that thinking is getting into the mainstream, and that um, there's some. So I'm thinking that what developers are doing isn't really okay anymore, and you know how do we facilitate that change? Yeah, and I, I suppose on a <laughs> on a personal level, things like um, getting into my garden and looking after my children and continuing the the work of self healing is um, are things that I find meaningful too. So.
4: Thank you. and I'll just share some last words of gratitude for you both for this really lovely conversation. I feel really grateful to be in this space and to have learned and shared thoughts and ideas and received a lot of new information that I'm excited to do, some learning and looking up on my own. Thank you both so much.
1: Yeah, thank you, Maybred and and Lily. Uh, It's been a real gift to have this conversation. I'm so excited to continue to learn more about what you're up to, Maybred, and um, yeah, and follow both of your work. Uh, Wonderful.
2: Yeah,
0: cute, I think thanks. So it's been really lovely to meet you both. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share some of the work that I'm involved in. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Mm-hmm.
3: This podcast would not have been possible without the generous support of the Institute of Humanities
1: Research at Arizona State University, the School of Sustainability at ASU, the Biomimicry Center at ASU, the Cultural Conservancy Native Seed Pod, Global Futures, Indigenous Knowledge's Focal Area at ASU, the School for Complex Adaptive Systems at ASU, Biomimicry 3.8,
3: the Learning from Nature podcast. And this podcast was hosted, written, and directed by Sara El Said, Lily Ehrman, and myself, Melissa K. Nelson of Anishinaabe and Métis Heritage. And this podcast would not have been possible without the amazing teamwork of the Cultural Conservancy's Native Seed Pod. We thank the producers, Mateo Inojosa, Mestizo Quechua, and Sarah Moncada Yaki. We thank the co-producer, Raven Marshall, Dakota Lakota, audio engineer, music, and soundscaping provided by Colin Farish, and partnership coordination by Alexis Stanley of the Diné, Akama, and Honduran peoples.
4: Thanks also, for they all contribute to these conversations, this work, and our lives. To the soil, microorganisms, food forests, seeds, ocean coral, redwood trees, rocks, rivers, birds, stars, people, places, and all of our kin.
3: Chi Migwitch, we thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Shukran. Thank you. <whistles>